You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. So I want to start this morning just by giving you a little information about myself. Uh, every Sunday I only have a couple minutes to kind of uh, speak and, and just get our minds and hearts pointed in the right direction. Uh, so some of you don't know a whole lot about me. Some of you know way more than probably you would like to know. Um, but uh, so for those of you who don't know a whole lot about me, I just want to uh, share a little bit about myself just so you can get to know me a little bit uh, and we can be family this morning and just kind of be comfortable with each other. So I was uh, born and raised in a small town of Elkview, West Virginia. Um, I'm almost guaranteeing nobody's heard of West Virginia. Um, maybe, maybe Dave Chittam, he's my fellow mountaineer. Uh, but so basically what this means is I'm a mountaineer at heart. I'm, my loyalty, my, at least for college athletics, belongs to WVU. Now before you get mad at me, I do root for Arkansas. I have Arkansas apparel. I, you know, I, I root for the Razorbacks. But I'm going to draw the line here, okay? I'm just not going to call the hogs. Is that okay? I, 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 I root for Arkansas. I just can't call the hogs. It's just, it's just, that's the place I draw the line. Hopefully I didn't lose you all. Everyone's checked out. Everyone's like, oh, I'm, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. Uh, anyway, hopefully, hopefully I didn't lose you. Uh, but when I, was, uh, when I graduated high school, I came here in the fall of 2014 uh, and began studying at Champion Christian College. Um, <clears throat> and then when I graduated Champion in 2018, uh, my wife and I got married. Uh, and this, in a couple weeks, we'll be celebrating our third year of marriage by going to Disney World. Woo! We're, we're excited. I don't know who's more excited. Definitely her. Um, not that I'm not excited, but she's just really excited. Uh, but, I mean, we're, we're looking forward to that. We're excited to that, for that. Uh, she moved here in that year. Uh, we got married, uh, and I started working at uh, Gospel Light. I started working here as the music pastor, uh, and she started working as kindergarten teacher at, uh, Ele- at Langston Leadership Academy. Um, so she's still the teacher there, and I'm, thankfully, I'm still the music pastor here. Um, <clears throat> although I heard Preacher singing this morning, and I thought, man, I might lose my job. He's, he's really getting it. He might just decide to take over. Um, uh, so when I was at Champion, God really blessed my time here through some of my professors, some of the staff here, some of my, my friends and classmates that, uh, that God uh, put in my life. He really used this time to grow me spiritually and, and just to mature me. Uh, and I'm so thankful for that. I remember Greek classes with John Johnson. Uh, those are some of, actually some of my favorite classes that I, I, I took at Champion were the Greek classes. Uh, also took uh, some, you know, some theology classes and some, some church education classes. But some of the classes that really stood out to me and were most influential to me were the classes that I took on worship. And God really used my time here at Champion uh, to begin a journey in me to seek true biblical worship. And this morning, what I want to do is I just want to invite you into this journey. I want to invite you to, uh, to just observe what God has taught me um, through, through my journey. I've got a lot of journeying left to do. I've got a lifetime of study ahead of me. I'm going to learn a lot more. But I just want to invite you to, so we can just share of what God has taught me. And I also want to invite you to continue on this journey of worship with me. So this morning... I want to take a look at a passage of scripture that's a pretty 
pretty popular passage about worship. We're going to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. So if you flip through that on your, in your Bible or scroll to that on your phone, or you can just kind of check it out on the screen and, and we'll read it together. But before we get into this, I want to ask you a question. And I want you to maybe write this on, in your, on the side of your worship guide or put it in the notes on your phone or just kind of come up with an answer in your own mind to this question. What is worship? What is worship? As you're thinking and as you're writing and as you're coming up with an answer for that, you know, you might think of uh, a definition. You might have some words that come to your mind. You might think of an experience, uh, of an experience that you had of worship. Some passages of scripture might come to your mind as you think about that. But as you, as, as you write that and as you think about that, I want, I want us just to kind of take a look back at that at the end of this sermon uh, and, and just see what God has taught us about music, about, about, especially about worship. What has God taught us about what worship means and how we live it? So that, that is our goal this morning, is to see what Paul teaches in this passage, what he is saying, and what that means for us as we worship now. So a little bit of context in the, about the book of Romans. Paul writes this book to the church in the city of Rome. Now, this church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. They've got a bit of a mixed congregation here. Uh, And a few years before Paul writes this, the Jews were kicked out of Rome by the Roman emperor. Um, And then five years later, they return to Rome. But as they return, things are a little bit different. The Gentiles have been practicing, uh, they've been continuing this church, and they've been worshiping in ways that are different from how the Jews were worshiping. The Jews come back and they wonder, why aren't you eating this? Why, why are you eating this? Why, don't, why doesn't your outward appearance look like this? Why aren't you keeping these laws that we keep? Why, why are we not worshiping the same way? And there's discord. There's this unity. So Paul writes to bring them all together, to, to, pro- to promote unity among them through the gospel of Jesus. So with, with that in mind, let's take a look at Romans chapter 12. Verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. Thank you for communicating yourself to us. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love and your mercy on us. God, this morning, may we be reminded of who you are and may you stir in our hearts as we respond. God, show us what true worship is 
And may we leave this morning practicing what worship is. We love you. At this point, may you just, may you just empty me of myself. May you speak as, as your word is presented. May your voice be heard and your word be heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at uh, uh, verse number one. Let's take a look at what Paul is saying. He says, I appeal or, or I beg with you or I plead with you. I, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, therefore. Whenever we see this word, therefore, we've got to understand what it is. We've got to understand that it's a transitional word. So the word, therefore, connects two ideas. It connects this first idea with this second idea. So whenever we're reading scripture and we see this word, we can't continue and read this, the second idea and really know what it means without first going back and understanding what the first idea was. This word implies a cause and effect. There's a cause up here in this first idea, and because of that, therefore, we have this effect. So what is the first cause? What is the first idea Paul is presenting? In chapter 11, verse 33, Paul, Paul comes to this conclusion, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is teaching these people that their worship is a response to who God is. This morning we learn from this that worship is a response. Worship is a response. It's not something that we initiate. It's not something that we begin. It's something that God begins. And he begins this by showing us who he is. He reveals himself to us. He reveals his character, his nature, his mercy, and we respond. See, this is the pattern of worship. God speaks. We respond. This pattern is foundational to our understanding of worship. If we don't understand this reality, this truth, we'll fall flat on our face regarding worship. Regarding life, we'll fall flat on our, fla- on our faces God speaks, we respond. God initiates himself to us. We don't initiate ourselves to God and he responds to us. No, he initiates himself toward us and we respond to him. God is the great initiator. This is a pattern that we see all throughout scripture, all throughout history. God speaks, we respond. In creation, God spoke all things into existence. He created all things by the word of his power. And creation responded by functioning as he designed it for his glory. God formed humanity. He formed mankind out of the dust of the ground and breathed into their nostrils his own breath to give them life. He, he, he said, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over all of creation. Uh, be my image bearers to the world. And humanity responded by doing what God intended for them to do. God speaks, we respond. God initiated his covenant with Abraham. He continued that covenant with Abraham's son, Isaac. And he continued that covenant through Isaac's son, Jacob, or Israel. They did not initiate the covenant with God. In fact, 
they weren't great people. <laughs> they, they, were, they were liars. They were cheaters. They were, uh, they were not worthy of God. In fact, many times in the Old Testament, God says, you were the least of all the families and all the nations in the world, yet I still chose you out of my love, out of my grace. God initiated his covenant. He spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they responded in faith-filled obedience. They responded in worship. They consecrated themselves to God and served the one true God alone. Now, as we read through the Old Testament, we see that their descendants did not keep what God had commanded them to do. Their their descendants did not worship solely the God of Scripture. So God initiated salvation for all people through Jesus Christ. He initiated this new covenant, an extension to the old covenant for us. Jesus came to the earth to die for us. The Holy Spirit works in us and moves in us, drawing us to the Father, and we respond in repentance and in believing in Jesus. God initiates salvation. We don't initiate it by our works or our goodness or or our efforts. God initiates salvation, and we respond. And this pattern continues in our worship. God calls us to worship, and we respond in worship. God calls us into his presence. He calls us to sing. He calls us to live our lives for his glory, and we respond in obedience and in worship. Every aspect of our Sunday morning is based on this truth. Every aspect of our services on Sunday morning. See, worship is a continual dialogue where God speaks and his people respond. When we gather, we read a call to worship. We read it this, this morning. We read a passage of scripture that reminds us that we didn't come here out of our own efforts or out of, out of our own goodness, but God calls us. God calls us to gather and to worship him. And we respond by singing, by praying, by confessing. God continues to call us through, uh, through his word, through the reading of his word, through, through speaking through pastors and, and other leaders in our church, through, through speaking through the sermon, through his word. And we respond by continually singing, by giving physically, by giving monetarily, but also by surrendering ourselves to the word of God. And finally, God calls us as we leave We always read a benediction at the end of the service. The benediction is just a blessing of God's grace upon his people and a charge for them to live out his grace. And we respond by worshiping as we leave, by surrendering our lives outside of the church in worship to God. God speaks, we respond. If you've been here on a Sunday morning, I'm sure you've heard me say this at the beginning of the service. Let's hear from God's word as he calls us to gaze upon him, as he calls us to look on who he is, and let's respond in worship. It's not by accident that I say that. It's on purpose. It's not because I can't think of anything better to say. It's because there is nothing better to say. I want this truth ingrained in our hearts and in our minds. God speaks, we respond. See, if we reverse this order If we say, no, I'm going to speak first and God responds to me, we're going to, we're not going to worship. I mean, we will worship, but it won't be 
we won't be worshiping God. We're going to fall on our faces. If we reverse this order, it can make us think that we have to invoke God's presence to move. It can make us think that we have to do everything just right, dot every I, cross every T, live perfectly, do everything just right as we come on Sunday mornings to sing. And if we don't get this emotional experience, then either God doesn't care about us or we didn't do it right. We've got to do it, got to do better next week, got to try again next week. And we're going to feel like God doesn't care or that, or that we won't be good enough. And the reality is we're never good enough. We will never be good enough. And God cares so much about us that he provided a way for us to experience his grace and to worship him through Jesus Christ. If we don't get this order right, we can end up like some of these Jews that Paul was writing to who thought that because they kept their outward appearance right or because they didn't do this and they did do this or because they practiced this and didn't practice this, that they had earned the right to stand before God and for God to bless them and for God to speak to them. Church, we are wretched people, always in need of the grace of God. We cannot earn the right to stand before his presence. We desperately need Jesus. If we don't get this order right, we can tend to try to manufacture God's presence. We can set this emotional expectation. We can set the atmosphere just right, have the lights down low enough, have the music just loud enough. And we can set this level of expectation that when we hit this, man, we are worshiping. Without the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, we won't worship. We're going to fall. We're going to stumble. That's why this pattern is so necessary. God speaks. We respond. So what exactly are we responding to? What is this response about? How has he spoken to us? Ultimately, we are responding to the mercies of God displayed in Christ Jesus. This was what Paul was appealing to them on behalf of, of the mercies of God. God has ultimately initiated this dialogue of worship with us through Jesus Through the death of Jesus for us, God has poured out his mercy on us and he has shown us who he is so that as we look at who he is, we can respond in worship. This is what the rest of the book of Romans was about. This is what Paul was leading up to. Paul talked about how all of the Romans, Jew or Gentile, regardless of of what they practiced or of who they were, of where they came from, they were all guilty before a holy God. We are all guilty before God. We stand deserving his judgment. We deserve his holy wrath. That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. All of us have sin, and the payment for that sin is death. But while we were still sinners, while we were on death row, God poured out his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God has shown his love. This is how he has demonstrated his love for us. And Christ died to take our sin and to give us his righteousness. And the Holy Spirit fills us as we repent and believe. The Holy Spirit fills us and he gives us a distaste for sin and a a desire for righteousness. He makes us holy as Christ is holy Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Therefore, present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice because of what God has done for us, because of his love poured out for us, because he is a God of grace and a God of mercy. We can come to him at any time. We have immediate and unlimited access through Jesus to come before the presence of God. It's not the, it's not the music. It's not us as the worship team. We can't get you before the presence of God. It's not a specific song that's going to bring you before the presence of God. It's not an emotion or an atmosphere. It's the blood of Jesus. So when we come before the throne room of God, when we are imagining the throne room of God and we're not thinking about Jesus and we don't consider the cross, we're not truly worshiping. Worship is a response. Let's continue to look at what Paul says to these people, to the Romans. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul was telling them to present your own bodies in worship, to sacrifice yourself as a living sacrifice. See, Paul was writing to a group of Jews who had grown up learning this. They had practiced this with their families. They were practicing this currently. He wrote this to a group of Gentiles who were familiar with the Old Testament. They were familiar with this way of worship, and they had observed their Jewish friends doing this. See, Paul was referring to Old Testament sacrificial worship. This was a gift of God's grace that he gave his people, the children of Israel, as a way of forgiveness, as a way to atone for their sins. See, these families, they would raise they would raise a lamb. And out of all the lambs, out of all the sheep, out of their whole herd, they chose their, their best lamb. They took the best lamb that they had, the lamb without spot, the lamb without blemish, blemish the lamb that the kids loved, the lamb that they had named and that they had all grown emotional toward and grown accustomed to, their favorite lamb. They brought it with them to the, to the temple. And they gave this lamb, they gave all of it, not holding anything back. They gave it as a sacrifice. And as God saw their work, as God saw this sacrifice, he saw their faith. And by their faith, he counted them as righteous. We know this sacrifice pointed toward the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. And as Paul wrote this, as he, as he was writing this, this is what he had in mind. He was telling them, just as you have practiced and as you have seen this family take their beloved lamb and offer it as a sacrifice, so you present your own body in sacrifice to God. Because Paul is writing this, Emperor Nero had become emperor of Rome. If you don't know anything about Emperor Nero, just know this. He was an evil human. He was one of the most gruesome and inhumane rulers to ever walk the face of the planet. He was evil. And as Paul writes this, what he may not realize is within the next, he may have realized it, maybe not, but within the next few years, some of these people that he was writing to, they would be strapped to a column in the Colosseum. And hungry lions would be released to feast upon them in front of thousands of people. 
Some of these people that Paul was writing to, they would be dipped in oil and they would be hung on posts outside of the city, outside of Nero's palace, and they would be set on fire as human torches to light Nero's streets. See, some of these people were literally about to present their bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And Paul was telling them, all of you, present yourself just as you had presented this lamb as an offering to God. So present yourselves to him as a sacrifice that is living. See, the problem with a living sacrifice is it can crawl off the altar. And how often are we prone to wander? Just as the great hymn says, we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Paul was calling them to continual sacrifice. To continue to surrender and sacrifice themselves in response to who God was. Continually presenting themselves in surrender to God. See, this phrase, spiritual worship, that Paul is talking about, the Greek word here used for spiritual only appears two times in the New Testament. One time it appears here. The second time it appears in the book of Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews is talking about a spiritual milk. And the correlation that we see is is this milk was not a literal milk that they were going to take. It was not something they were physically going to drink, but it was a milk that communicated to a deeper part of them than just the physical. It was a metaphysical milk. In the same way, Paul, Paul was saying, not, not literally taking your lamb to the, to, the, to the temple, but in a spiritual way, you're sacrificing yourself on a deeper level, on a deeper part of yourself. What Paul was communicating is that true worship demands our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. See, this is the second thing I want to talk about. Worship demands complete surrender. Just as these, just as these uh, people would practice, just as these Jews would practice taking this lamb and presenting all of it, Paul was saying, so you present all of yourselves. Surrender every aspect of yourself in complete surrender. Worship demands our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. We worship with our minds, our intellect. We have a transformed way of thinking. Paul says in verse 2, Don't be conformed to the thought patterns of this present age, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your minds. True biblical worship produces transformation in the life of the Christian. And this transformation takes place when our mind is renewed. See, we become what we behold. Whatever it is that we are beholding, whatever it is that has captured our attention, whatever our mind is set on, that's what we're going to become. That's what we're going to conform to. That's why Paul was saying, don't be conformed to the thought pattern of this present age, but rather set your mind on Christ, have your mind renewed by the gospel, and you will be transformed to his image. We become what we behold. We should constantly be setting our minds on God, on Christ. We do this by reading scripture. We do this by preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done, by preaching the gospel to our families, to our neighbors. We do this by reading prayers, by reading books written by great men and women of God. 
We do this by observing holy days, such as uh, Christmas or Easter, setting our minds on the mercies of God. Worship demands our minds. So what happens when our minds aren't engaged? What happens when we aren't surrendering our minds? Then we have no foundation. We have no anchor. We have no purpose. We are singing aimlessly. We are living aimlessly with no direction. When we pursue our emotions without our minds set on God, then we're not worshiping him. See, we're always worshiping something. That's what what we're designed to do. We're designed to worship, and we're always worshiping something. We're becoming what we behold. So what are we beholding? What are we worshiping? When we gather on Sunday mornings and, and... and our emotions, are we, and we're seeking our emotions, and we don't have our minds set on Christ, what are we actually wor- worshiping in that moment? Are we worshiping a feeling? Are we worshiping the song itself? Are we worshiping our own lives? See, just because the, what makes a, a Sunday morning service great, what makes worship so good is not that we're caught up in our emotions, but, but, but that we're, our minds are being transformed by Christ. See, one of my favorite songs is Purple Rain by Prince. I guess this, I guess this is confession time. Uh, Purple, <laughs> Purple Rain by Prince is one of my favorite songs. There's a part at the end of this song where the band is just full, and Prince is just, he's just wailing on this guitar solo, and he sings this counter melody, and it's just one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. As I listen to it, I get emotional. As I listen to it, I feel like, I feel like I'm floating. It's just, it's a supernatural experience. But what is my mindset on? What exactly am I worshiping in that moment? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't go listen to Prince. Obviously, Prince is, is one of my favorite artists. He's great. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is when we gather on Sunday mornings, and this is what we're seeking when we're gathered on Sunday mornings and all we're wanting is this emotional experience, we may get it. We may feel a certain way. But what are we worshiping? What is our mind set on? I can't tell you how many times I've been leading worship and my mind is just set on playing the right chords or set on what I'm going to eat for lunch or set on the Cowboys game that afternoon and just praying that Dak's right calf holds up or I'm thinking about things that I didn't get done this week and things that I have to do next week and, oh, the list goes on and on. If our minds aren't set on Christ, we're not truly worshiping. We may feel good. We may feel a certain way. We may even be serving in our church. But if our minds aren't set on Christ, we aren't worshiping. Worship demands our minds. It also demands our hearts. With our hearts, we express our affections toward God. Paul was pleading with them by the mercies of God. The word mercy is also translated uh, in other parts of the Bible as uh, his compassionate heart. It's translated as compassionate heart. Or it can be translated as affections. So because of God's affections on us, because of his compassion poured out on us, our hearts overflow with affection for him with compassion and and love for him. As we set our minds on him, this mindset will produce a deep longing within us for him. 
And as our hearts are full, we express this by joyfully expressing our love to God, by passionately praying for the lost, by reverently bowing in awe of who God is and how he has revealed himself. We worship with our hearts. So what happens when our hearts aren't engaged? What happens when we aren't worshiping with our affections? Then we have no joy. We have no desire. We have no sincerity. We have no meaning to what we're saying. We may be thinking about the truth. We may be thinking, we may be reading scripture. We may be reciting theological creeds. But none of it is good if it doesn't change our hearts. None of it matters, I should say, if it doesn't change our hearts. Our hearts should be open to how God is changing us through his truth. If my wife comes home and she tells me that she loves me and I don't take my eyes off of the Cowboys game and I don't stop playing 2K or I don't stop checking my phone and I just say, I love you too. Do I mean it? Does she believe me? Instead, if I put my phone down, if I turn the TV off, if I look her in the eyes and I say, I love you so much, I'm so thankful that you're my wife, you're so, it, my life is just so much better with you in it. She's going to believe what I say. I'm going to mean what I say more. Just because we're thinking about God and just because we're, uh, just because we're serving in the church doesn't mean that our hearts are turned toward him. We may know the Bible forward and backward. We may go through the motions, but it doesn't mean that our hearts are close to him. See, this is why we sing. Singing music is a gift of God's grace for us to express our affection toward him. Music communicates with a part of us. It allows us to express our hearts in a way that words alone can't. And it's a gift of God's grace for us. See, when we sing, we participate in something. Our hearts participate in something we will be doing for eternity. See, I wouldn't tell our pastor this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell Pastor Capace this. But you know what you don't see in eternity? You don't see preaching. You don't see someone getting up at a pulpit and preaching. But you know what you do see? You see a group of people singing. You see people lifting up their praise and their voice to God. When we sing, we're participating in something we're going to be doing for eternity with angels, with saints who've gone on before us, with saints who are going to come behind us. So we sing to express our affections toward God. Worship demands our minds, demands our hearts, and it also demands our bodies, our actions. We surrender every part of our lives and worship to God. See, worship is not just confined to singing. Although while we're here, while we gather on Sundays and while we sing, we certainly are worshiping. While we're driving in the car and our favorite worship song is playing and we're singing along with it, and we're definitely worshiping. Music is a way that we worship. But worship is not limited to just music. It's not limited to just this 15-minute portion in our service that we sing. It's not limited to a specific genre of music. Worship extends to every part of our lives. Every breath that we take, realizing that it is a gift from God, 
and breathing it out in praise to him. Every conversation we have, using it as an opportunity to share God's love with somebody, to talk about God's grace. Every task we accomplish, seeking excellence for the glory of God. Every activity we go on as a family, seeing it as an opportunity to disciple and to mature our family for the glory of God. Every meeting we attend at work, exhibiting the patience and forbearance of God, but also showing the unity that God calls us to, the selflessness that God exhibits. Every hobby we invest in, being creative as a reflection of our all-creating God. Every delicious meal that we eat, glory to God, is an act of worship. Every seemingly meaningless task that we do in our days, if our minds are set on Christ and if our hearts are overflowing in affection for him, is an act of worship to God. See, I can either, I can go to the store, get my stuff and leave. I can mow my grass, just get everything cut and just go in, take a shower, be done with it. Or I can go to the store with my mind set on the love of God, with my heart overflowing in love for him. I can go to the store with a smile on my face. I can see someone struggling and love them, maybe get them a meal, maybe help them in some way. I can go to the store as an act of worship. I can mow my grass. When I mow my grass, I can put a sermon on. I can listen to a sermon. I can listen to music. I can, I can worship God as I mow the grass. I can, I can use it as a time to pray for people who God is calling me to pray for. I can mow my grass and cut the lines as straight as I can and be as OCD as I can be about my lawn, which is every time I mow, um, for the glory of God. I can mow my grass and worship toward God. Worship extends to every part of our lives. So what if we're worshiping God without our bodies? Then we aren't truly being changed by what we say we believe or by what we express. I think about when I was uh, younger, when I was in middle school, and my parents told me to clean my room. And they're laughing because they're here this morning, and, uh, and they know that I'm not lying. Uh, but they, told me, they would tell me to clean my room, and in my mind, I would think, man, I've got great parents. They love me. They care about me. They don't want ants to gather in my room. They don't want mold growing on my clothes. They, they love me. I may express that to them. I may be like, mom and dad, you're the best. I love you. Thanks for caring about me. I'm going to clean my room. I'm going to do it. But if a, day, if, a, if a day goes by, a week goes by, a month goes by, if I graduate and go to college, and my room still isn't clean, <laughs> then it doesn't matter what I said them. It doesn't matter how sincerely I expressed it if my life doesn't follow up, if I don't do what they're telling me to do. In the same way, it doesn't matter what we say we believe about God. It doesn't matter how deeply we express it toward him if our lives aren't changed by the gospel. As our minds are set on him, as our hearts are turned toward him, that should overflow into our lives and change everything about us. So how does this look? How does this all come together? Well, we start by thinking about the truth of God. We start by thinking about who he is. We, we, we read scripture talking about the love of God. We set our mind on his love. We're reminded that he is a God full of love and grace. We think about how he has demonstrated that love on Christ on the cross. 
We think about what Christ has done, how he died to take our sin, how he died to give us his righteousness. And we open up our hearts for the Holy Spirit to move in us. We tune our hearts to God. We turn our hearts to him and we express our love and our gratitude for him with our affections. And as we do that, it overflows into our lives. We, we live in obedience to him because we love him, because he has loved us. This is what we sing about this morning. Our chains are gone, our debt is paid, the cross has overthrown the grave for Jesus' blood that, that sets us free means death to death and life for me. Therefore, I give my whole life, my mind, my heart, my body, to honor this love. By the lamb who was slain, I'm forgiven. This is biblical worship. We respond by surrendering every aspect of ourselves. And as we do this, the third thing I want to point out, worship unites the church. Worship unites the church. Paul goes on right after talking about worship, and he says, For by the grace that was given to me, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but rather think with sober judgment. Think uh, sober-mindedly. Think in your right mindset. As we truly worship, what it's going to produce in us is not an arrogance, not an entitlement, but a humility, a lowliness, a meekness. I want to say this, and as I say this, understand that I'm saying this to me too. Worship is not about you. Worship is not about you. Worship is not about me. Our goal on Sundays as we come, should not, as, we, as we gather to worship, should not be to see what we can get from God, but rather to give ourselves to him. To surrender ourselves to one another to see how we can serve him by serving his church. We should enter our services with a humility as opposed to an entitlement. How many times have we left, how many times have I left a church service and I said, man, I just was not feeling the worship. If I can use a millennial term, how can I say, how many times have I said, I just wasn't vibing with the music. How many times do I say, man, I just didn't get anything out of the songs? See, when we're truly worshiping, this won't be our response. Because when we're truly worshiping, our hearts and our minds aren't set on ourselves, but they're set on God. And they're open towards serving his church. See, this kind of biblical worship is community-focused. It's not focused on ourselves. It's not focused on what's best for me, but it's focused on what's best for us. How can we worship God as a community? We are the body of Christ, as Paul describes. And he says, you're made up of different members and you all have different functions. And just as we have different organs in our body and different, uh, different parts of our body, they all function together to make the whole body work if some of them aren't working properly or they aren't in alignment, the body's going to struggle. It's not going to function as it was designed to. So we as the church, God has given us different gifts. God has given you a different gift than the person next to you. He's given you a different ability than he's given me. 
He's given you a different personality than everyone else on your row. And that's not by accident. It's on purpose. He does that so you can work together in the community with everyone else to make the body function as it should. Worship is not about us. We are not a group of individuals worshiping individually. We are a collection of people lifting one unified voice. We don't gather on Sunday morning seeking this God and I moment. Although, let me be clear, if our minds are set on Christ and our hearts are tuned to him, we're going to have those. Those are going to happen. There were were times this morning when I was standing here and, and thinking about the truth of God and my heart was overflowing and I had this personal experience with God where, where he moved in me personally. You're going to have that and treasure that, enjoy that as God does that. But if our goal is to only get that when we gather, if we come together on Sunday mornings and we don't once think about the people next to us and, and we just cut everything, everything else off, we're missing the point of what Paul is saying. We're missing a massive part of worship, which is that we, although we are different, although we look around this room and there are people who look different than us, there are people of different walks of life than us, there are people of different social statuses than us, there are people who who enjoy different things than us, although there are people in this church that we don't have a single thing in common with, we do have this in common, that Jesus makes us righteous before God. And the Spirit fills us. And we can sing joyfully with people we don't know, with people we don't really, we wouldn't even be talking to outside of church. And we can come together and we can sing as one unified voice, as the body of Christ. See, if we're only focused on ourselves and on our feelings and on our own experiences, we miss the blessing, the gift of worshiping in a community. Imagine what it would be like if instead of just cutting everybody else off on Sunday mornings, imagine if we gathered and we took some time to look around the room. And we took some time to just open our ears and listen to other people singing. Imagine if, if, if we saw someone just struggling, someone not even able to stand up, just weeping, broken. And imagine if we practiced this and someone went to them Someone prayed for them. Someone put their arm around them and said, what's going on? Let me pray with you. Imagine what that would look like in our church. Imagine if if we looked around the room and we saw people just celebrating, just so full of joy they can't contain themselves. And we go up to them after the service and we say, man, you're coming to my house either today or this week. We're going to sit down and have lunch or we're going to have coffee. You're going to tell me what God is doing in your life. This is incredible. I've never seen joy like this. Imagine the unity that this would produce in our church if we weren't so focused on ourselves, but instead we were focused on one another. At some point on our Sunday gatherings, we should take the time to see what God is doing in the church and realize that it's bigger than ourselves, what God is doing. When we do this, when our minds are set on Christ, when our hearts 
are overflowing in praise, when that bleeds into our lives and, and everything that we do, when we do this as a, as a body of Christ, when we do this together as the church, when, we, when the church functions as it's supposed to function, the result is that God is glorified. The fourth thing I want to point out is worship brings glory to God. When we worship as we should, God is glorified. When we gather together on Sunday mornings and and we worship collectively and we function as we're supposed to function, God is glorified. When we we experience this love of God and it just overflows into every aspect of our lives and we tell people about the truth of God, God is glorified. See, worship overflows into our mission. Missions is a continuation of worship. We just had a conference about missions. We just had a missions conference where we talked about reaching our community, reaching our world. We never will do that if we aren't worshiping. It doesn't matter the efforts we put forth or the programs we design. If our minds aren't set on Christ, if our hearts aren't turned to him, if we aren't functioning as the body of Christ, we're not truly going to be on mission. But instead, when we behold the glory of God and we know him more, it's going to lead us to make him known as a response. Worship bleeds into our missions. It overflows into our missions. See, worship doesn't end in the church. It continues in our communities. When we read the last passage of scripture, that's, that's your last note, by the way, when worship doesn't end in the church, it continues in our communities. When we end the service, when we read the final prayer, when we read the, uh, or the, when we read the final scripture, the benediction, we don't stop worshiping then. When, the pastor, when our pastor comes up and presents the word, we don't stop worshiping to hear from his word. When we, when we leave, when we go into our communities, when we go home, and, when we go to lunch, when we go home and be with our families, when we go back to work on Mondays, we don't stop worshiping. We continue worshiping. Because true worship is a response to who God is. And it demands every part of us, every aspect of our lives. This morning... How do we respond to this? What does our response look like? First, we reset our minds to Christ. We think about the love of God displayed on the cross for us. We think about the power that God has over death and the resurrected life of Christ and how that changes us. And as we do that, we open our hearts to how the Holy Spirit is moving us and leading us. We surrender our affections toward God. And then we surrender our whole lives to God. And we say, God, have your way in me. Do what you want to do. My life is yours. Then we serve the body. We serve one another. We love one another. We We seek ways to to love each other. 
But finally, we declare this glory of God to the world. So this morning as we respond, as the Holy Spirit leads you, just be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you, what he's leading you to do. If the Spirit's, if you've you've never believed in Jesus, if you've never repented of your sins and the Spirit's leading you to, to seek more information about that, come see one of our pastors. If the Spirit is leading you just to sit in your seat or just to stand where you are and just meditate and just think, do that. If the Spirit is leading you to come to the front and to use this place up here as a symbolic altar to present yourself before God. Do that. If the Spirit is leading you to go to someone else in this church and pray with them or maybe seek unity with them, do that. If the Spirit is leading you to just stand at your seat and just sing this last song at the top of your lungs, do that. This morning as we respond, let's be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Let's let the Holy Spirit lead us to respond as he wills. But let's respond to who God is this morning. Father, we love you. God, we recognize that we are nothing without you. Without you, we are lost in darkness. We are dead in our sins. We are hopeless. But God, we are just in awe of your love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. How beautiful is your love. God, as we set our minds on you and as as your love overflows in us, we respond by surrendering all of ourselves for you. God, the very breath in our lungs is a gift from you. May we respond in praise. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's respond together.